Welcome to Ancient and Justified. MTV Party Zone, isn't it? With me, James Hyman. And with me, Simone Angel. Mr. James Hyman, such a joy. There you are again. Oh, it's always good to see you. Likewise, in your lovely, lovely, beautiful jungle environment. I've got I a know, don't you, don't media like jungle it? behind me, but I like what you've got. Very simple and minimal and beautiful. And Lots of green, a proper jungle background because I am in Belize and mm. you are in London. So, yes, quite a different background behind us. Uh, James, talking about what's behind us, let's talk about the shows that we used to do. Just really quickly, a little recap for those who don't know Party Zone and MTV Dance. So from 1988 to the year 2000, you were the presenter, I was the main producer and director of all the MTV dance shows, namely Party Zone, Dance Floor and Dance Floor Chart. And what we did in those shows is we covered the culture, the music, the clubs, what was going on, but we also interviewed, you did it basically, and I sort of gave you pointers for those interviews, the who's who in dance music. This was broadcast mm -hmm. over 60 million households at the time and just remember the simple thing here there was no internet so for those generations who didn't have the internet and maybe red magazines this was such a it was essential viewing if you were into dance music electronic music club music you you know you watch these shows exactly so we are revisiting a lot of the people who featured prominently on those shows and letting them also look back at when we were interviewing them, how their life's changed, what's happened to them. Do they look back with fond memories, bitter memories, just shrug their shoulders? How do they feel about that and life in general? Exactly. And today we're going to be checking in with Adamski. I am so excited. I think this is going to be a, a lot of fun amazing guy and just revisiting i mean he was on party zone 14th of july 1998 when we changed the format a little we had like a little round table we had three guests on that show i think it was kid loco and dj sneak and we would get them all to maybe look back at a bit about themselves and also review the latest dance videos releases news so i mean that's already over 20 years ago. Wow. I love how yeah. I have, well, I have no yeah. recollection Me too. at all. <laughs> I cannot read. I mean, I know that I know Adamski. I mean, I used to come around his house way back when. I don't even know if he remembers that though, but uh, I don't remember doing that show. This is the fun thing about, about revisiting with people and just to put all our memories together. Maybe when we weave them all together, we have one solid story. So many amazing memories. Look at that. When he was on the cover of the face magazine, Cover on the face when you're in your early 20s, especially at such an important moment in dance music. You know, this was the race. Literally, this guy playing a, a gig somewhere in Kentish Town. Weeks later, he's playing a massive uh, rave at Sunrise. Wow. Everyone Google those oh Sunrise raves. In the days where, the, <laughs> yeah, there were no phones, mobile phones, capturing all this wow. stuff. Real, you know, he, so he basically emerged at such an yeah. interesting time. You know, imagine being such a huge rave star in a scene that's so nascent, it just started. It's not like now, of course, if you're a big star, it's amazing, mm -hmm. but everything's so established. You know, that second summer of love was new, it was exciting, it hadn't happened. So this guy was a megastar at a time where an amazing scene was also 
taking I mean a seriously amazing scene acid house and house but there's a thing yeah. in ID here look up to you whether you ask him this and I mean obviously but it just says here go on says, go on tell me since Adam was big enough to stand on his own two feet he'd wanted to be famous nothing wrong with that right all right at the age at the age of five so we're talking early 70s mm -hmm. his role models were Jimmy Savile and Gary Glitter <laughs> Now, at that time, it was not fully known wow. what Gary Glitter and Jimmy Savile to the public were doing, right? To anyone who doesn't know these figures, I mean, these guys mm. were later found out to be just horrendous um, pedophiles, child molesters. Mm. So, whoo, but of course, back then, no one knew. And no, Adamski I mean, didn't those know, internally, he, yeah. he didn't know. And you know what? I got to say, if you saw Gary Glitter on television, if you saw Jimmy Savile on television presenting Top of the Pops and Gary Glitter in his big glam rock stuff, you know, parading around to tunes that you liked, you know, you don't know, right? Exactly. No. Oh, but I'm, I'm, right. I'm so looking forward to talking to him. I have gazillions I just, of questions for him. I bet. And look, just as a few things, I just, there's so much here quickly before you go off and do your interview. So this is from the NME in the 6th of um, April, September, 1990. Again, that's over 30 years ago, wow. right? There's such amazing detail in these interviews. He talks about basically going to meet Elton John. He does a remix for Elton John. He talks about um, Derek May slagging him off that year at the New Music Seminar in New York, where basically Derek May said to him, you've killed techno music. What are you doing? So wow. it might be interesting to ask him, did he ever meet Derek May? Did they ever reconcile? Did he, you know, mm -hmm. um, I'd be interested also, we don't think we asked him at the time, if memory serves me correctly, but you know, his killer, his massive, massive hit, still mm -hmm. played on radio today, um, covered by George Michael. Did he meet George Michael? What, right. you know, what did he think of all the covers? Sugar Babes covered it. That's wow. an amazing, amazing track that, again, he talks about in these interviews, so much detail about how he, you know, got screwed over by manager saying sign this sign this sign this so when george michael had that hit and it was played all over the world there he is as he said i think he was you know not getting recompensed how he should have been wow i do wonder about that when people have had one massive massive hit and some smaller ones but can people live of that for the rest of their lives? Like, I, yes, really, I would like to know, like, how, how does this work? So maybe, uh, okay, so in, in, he can tell you, I think in his case, alas, no, I think he signed a bad deal. It's all up to the publishing. If you're the writer of a track and you control your rights. Mm, yeah, but it's changed again because these days with all the streaming, um, you have to own the masters. So that's a whole other thing. Again, most artists don't own the masters, even if you got the publishing. Yes, Taylor Swift, Taylor Swift. Yeah, Taylor Swift re-recording. You don't have to own your master. Look, the key is in the writing of a song. If you write a song, you imagine you write a song like Paul McCartney, you know, Yesterday or My Way, um, you know, by Paul Anker. And that is recorded by hundreds and hundreds of people. You're still going to get money on the yeah. publishing. But if you don't own the publishing, if you've been screwed over your publishing, which it sounds like, and Adamski would confirm it, he unfortunately did a bad deal, then it must be very gutting seeing George Michael singing that song and hearing that song thousands and thousands of times over the years and thinking, I'm not getting wow. a royalty. I will ask him yeah. for sure. Okay. Ask him maybe a little bit about obviously what he's done since. Adam Sky, he was pretty big in the Electro Clash 
thing that came at the beginning of the millennium in the 2000s. Last year, or the year before, the 30th anniversary of Killer, and he got Boy George and a lot of people to reinterpret that song. There's lots. Right, and he did some three-step stuff. He got right. really into waltz. Yeah. Well, not waltz, but he wanted to kind of do a modern, updated version of the waltz. So that's kind of odd. And he's in Vienna, so I'll be talking to him from Vienna. Very of nice. course, that's the home of the waltz. So I don't know if, he's, if he still is in his waltz face or not. We will find out. This is what he talks about, the George Michael killer. He said, um, I was, uh, he goes, having been plied, this is him just signing the deal. This is from uh, Metro newspaper. Uh, he said, look, he made a mistake. I was in the States for the first time and operating on a faulty bullshit detector. Was told by managers that if I did not sign on a certain dotted line, they would abandon me and leave me to find my own way back to London and would not introduce me to people I needed to meet. So having been plied with wine and weed on top of jet lag, I signed. Consequently, by the time George Michael was singing my song, Killer, he did it on that Freddie Mercury tribute EP, if you remember, huge record. He says... It went back to number one again, that version. He goes, I quote, I was living on a sofa half the size of my body in Peckham, drinking wow. cooking sherry. That is harsh. That's harsh. So anyway, look, we could go on. There's so much. I'll just, again, last thing. do a whole show on yeah, that. Go on. Just that by itself. So definitely a very colourful life, that's for sure. Ups and downs by the sounds of it. Tim in ID. The genius or madman or both. Hmm. Wow. Wow. All right. Well, I hope you do a good interview and uh, look forward to hearing about what you say. All right, James. Thank you so much. Adam Paul Tinley, also known as Adam Sky also known yeah. as Sonny Erickson and known to most mm. as Adamski. Thank you for that being on the me. show. My pleasure. That is you. It's all of these. Yeah, except um, sadly, there was another guy called Adam Sky oh. who died a couple of years ago. And he was another DJ who released stuff. And, and he got, he was like in the, DJ Top 100 or something, and then he died. Oh. And it was on BBC, and he fell through a window in Bali. And uh, and um, even my mum was calling me to say, are you okay? And I was like, yeah. And, then, and I don't know why this guy had the same name as me, because I'd already been releasing under that name on some quite big labels, like Kitsune and Turbo and... Crosstown Rebels and quite, you know, well-known around the world dance labels. And then this guy started using the same name as me and I've gone back to Adamski. Yeah. So I, didn't, I couldn't be bothered to sort of deal with it. But then he died. It was so weird. Oh, my goodness. Because a, a friend of mine contacted my wife as well and said, you know, if there's anything we could do, oh, you no. know, and it really people thought I was dead and that. You know, and obviously, I'm not. I have to say that just kind of seems to sum up your life. It's a lot of 
bits in your life are just quite bizarre. And I've noticed that. So James Hyman and I got together and he read out mm. all these old magazine articles to me, um, little clips of it. I'm actually going to play for you later. But the thing mm. that the theme that just kept coming back was just how unusual your life is. I mean, what I believe you're actually writing um, your memoir, right? Because what a story. Uh, yeah. It is a funny story, yeah. Um, I mean, an odd story. Because when things are happening to me that are weird, obviously I don't think it's that weird because it's just kind of subjective and it's happening to me and it's just like, oh, you know. Um, like uh, when I was 11, I made this record and John Peel used to play it and it just, I just... Thought, felt like that's what all 11 year old boys do not all but you know but that was the thing but, I was going to ask you about first so you started with it's stupid babies right with your brother who was yeah. five at the time yeah I mean yeah. these days we think that Billie Eilish is young you know or was young when she started and there was you at age 11 mm. with your five-year-old brother I believe the NME yeah. was writing about you guys. Like you said, the yeah. radio legend, John Peel, was behind you. It's just, it's mm. insane to think about. And yet you thought that yeah. was kind of normal? It, it did feel normal. I mean, it obviously it was really exciting, but it didn't feel like I'd done such an unusual thing to send a tape off to a record label. Of course, nowadays, it's like anyone can just record themselves and post it you know beam it around the world within seconds so it doesn't sound such a big deal then but it was quite a quite a palaver in those days getting you know getting a tape to a record company getting them to actually listen to it and then you know all by normal post like sending contracts back and forth and you know, it was a big, quite a big sort of deal. So what did and, uh, so what did the kids at school think? So you came back to school and you'd been on the radio. What was the reaction? Can you remember that? What that was like? That whole period. Well, I remember I was in drama class, and like some kid came to knocked on the door and said to the teacher, um, "Oh." Adam Tinley has to go to the headmasters or something. And I was like, oh, no, someone's died or something, or I'm in trouble. Or, and, and it was like the BBC had sent a taxi to take me and my mum to go on this show that used to be on every day called Nationwide. It was like on a, just before or after the six o'clock news. And um, that was quite exciting. And it was quite – I was in um, – smash hits magazine which then it was like for younger people like older kids were reading nme and melody maker and stuff but smash hits was like the kind of bible for young kids into pop music yeah and i was in then and and i was i just started secondary school so it was quite good because i was what in those days, what you would call a sissy, because <laughs> I was, you know, like, I wasn't into football or anything like that, or, you know, what other boys were doing, and I was into basically playing Lego and making punk music on my tape recorder, 
and um and uh but it got me quite a good like they kind of thought i was cool at school because i'd like you know was in smash hits and had a record being played on john peel so i was kind of like even like bigger kids would kind of look out for me and stuff you know and i could get away with wearing my funny clothes i i got the nickname christmas tree at school because <laughs> i had such an odd choice of like things which i still haven't really grown out of that's another 40 years later that's another thing i was going to ask you about because james even dug up something um some article where you talked about and this is way way back that in the 70s when you were about five years old your heroes mm. at the time were Jimmy Savile and Gary Glitter. I was like, oh no! Oh fuck! Yeah, well, yeah, that's <laughs> awful. The, the only two people I've ever written fan letters to in my life are like two like renowned paedophiles. Oh my god! And basically, um, basically, someone said to me, "Well, just lucky they never wrote back." Exactly. Exactly. Um, yeah. Oh my I God. even sent Jimmy Savile one of my dad's cigars and like, you know, it was before, uh, just, it's just vile, isn't it? And weird and awful. You know, when, when it came out about Gary Glitter, I had, I had a Gary Glitter annual that I'd saved from the seventies and Gary Glitter CDs and records that I just had to bin them. I just don't want, I don't want, Nancy pedo vibes in my house. Exactly, I just tedious. It's it's really awful what what these guys have done. Um, but yeah. but but I guess it was more the glamorous side. It was the showmanship, I guess, of these guys that you were attracted to, and that is yeah. really a big part of of who you still are today. And that you later also found yeah. back, for instance, in Elton John someone yeah. you also worked with and you yeah. even said that you learned quite a lot from him in that way about about the showmanship can i actually play you a little clip okay elton john gave me the best bit of advice ever although i already knew it which was not to contrive anything just to let things happen and then he's asked as he, do you think he has a lot in common with elton i just say that we like to entertain people and not take things seriously. I remember him doing this amazing show in Central Park once. It was after John Lennon's death, and he did this song with tears in his eyes as a tribute to Lennon. It was really moving. He then he went backstage, changed costume, and jumped back out wearing an effing Donald Duck outfit. That was just so brilliant. Really, really good. <laughs> Do you remember that quote? I don't remember. I, I remember like him dressed as Donald Duck. I don't remember him telling me I shouldn't contrive anything. Um, I do remember when we did a photo shoot together, also for Smash Hits, which I was just talking about before. Um, he um, was like, he couldn't believe that how much faffing about they took for the shoot, you know, with makeup artists and assistants and all these people. And, and uh, he said, in the 70s, he, it took 15 minutes for him to do a photo shoot. He'd just walk in wearing what he was wearing. They'd take his picture and that was it. I mean, I, I didn't have stylists. I had a couple of mates in the fashion industry that might give me a couple of things. You know, I might 
blag a few outfits here and there, but I didn't have someone advising me what I should wear. I mean, maybe people probably thinking, well, I should have done. When I did that stuff with Elton John, I got I, NME, that paper, they hated me for that. And people hated me for doing stuff with Elton John, like how naff and crap and like, I'd, you know, I'd sold out. And then a few years later, it's all cool for like Moby and Eminem. And still to this day, like he's, you know, young thug and like cool, like rappers and stuff. And, and it, but when I did it, everyone kind of hated me. And then it became, oh, it's all right. It's Elton John suddenly cool. When now I think he's actually not. <laughs> I didn't really, I don't know if I even thought he was cool then. I just really did it because I knew how impressed my mum would be if I just phoned I, my mum and said, oh, by the way, mum, I was round at Elton's and stuff. I have he, a quote. You know, I have a quote about that one too. Hold on here. I've got another one. This is about how you kind of did it for your mum. Let's listen to this one. <laughs> Metro, June 20th, 1998. When Elton John asked him to remix his single Medicine Man a few years back, Adamski did the job to impress my mum, but did not exactly rush to join the jet set. I was summoned to his suite on the top floor of some hotel in LA. Elton was dancing around the room and they brought in this gold trolley piled with strawberries and buckets of champagne. Elton said, you can have whatever you want. And I said, I'll just have a beer, please. Yeah. <laughs> I'll just have a beer, I'm trying please. to be all punk rock. All... All I did was a remix for him. Yes. And it, they made such a big deal. I just did some remix. It wasn't like I went and made a song or even did a show with him or anything. I just remixed one of his tracks and yeah. smash it to put us on the cover. And it was all made a big like to do about something that these days people would be like, yeah, so what? You yeah, know, like. But at the time it was unusual. And like you said, at the time Elton John was not considered cool and you, you just, you know, you did it. Whereas now hmm. it's all different and everybody's collaborating and it's just a whole different scene. So you were just a little bit ahead of your time, I guess, in that hmm. way. I yeah, don't well, I don't know. I, I don't know. I didn't, like he said, don't contrive anything or just go with the flow. That's pretty much what I was doing, actually. So it wasn't my intention to be like a, the spokesperson for the rave generation. No, I just think they didn't have anyone else to do it. And because I put my, I just wanted to play music that I liked. And the fact people liked it and started booking me for all these clubs and raves was a bonus because I was kind of quite happy just doing it in my bed sit above the kebab shop on Camden High Street making these tunes and then it just kind of um, organically ended up that I started playing at all these great clubs and like Amnesia in Ibiza and Heaven in London and Shoom and all these Hacienda in Manchester all these top clubs and it was just all I wasn't trying it just kind of kept just happening and then um and then because there wasn't really anyone else like me the press started like expecting me to kind of speak for everybody right. and I wasn't 
I didn't really, that's not what I wanted, but I sort of went along with it because you would do it if you're 21 and everyone's blowing smoke up your ass and stuff. And then it, I kind of put myself in a tricky position of like having to have something interesting or useful to say when all I really wanted to do was go out, take drugs and dance like everyone like else. Like everyone else really. at the time. So, yeah, so, yeah. so tell me, because um, you were in Ibiza in 1988, so was I. I mean, if I hadn't mm. been in Ibiza at that time and discovered the rave scene, the, the acid house scene, I would have never mm. ended up in London. None of the MTV stuff would have oh. happened. It was really the catalyst yeah. for everything for me personally. And yeah. it sounds to me like the same really was the case for you. Was it? Uh, kind. I mean, it did because it was, yeah, like going to Ibiza before everyone started going there. I mean, I know people have been going there from time, like in the 1930s, like poets and writers went there and did drank absinthe or whatever. I mean, in, in the 60s and 70s, it was like on the hippie trail and whatever and but going there in the 80s, just when that acid thing was still fresh and catching Alfredo DJing when it was still an open air club and it was just this odd kind of mixture of people from around the world, like the kind of New York disco crowd and jet setters from all over Europe and like drug dealers from Manchester and Liverpool and London and and kind of just odd mix of people, a great mix of people and a great mix of music as well. It was the seed of the whole rave culture that, that you know, just went global not long after that. And, uh, and you were such a pivotal part. I mean, you played such a huge role in it because you basically, if, what James was saying to me, so you were playing one weekend, you were playing in, in a little club in Kentish Town. And then within mm. just a few weeks time, you were playing at the Sunrise um, Raves. Yeah. You started to just well, it, play everywhere. It wasn't I mean. even a little club in Kentish Town. It right. was a restaurant. Oh, it was wow. my manager's restaurant. And... Um, yeah, just I've been making these tracks in my bed sit, as I said, um, and uh, and then my manager was like, "Oh, let's just do a party after the pub, you know, an after party for local kind of Camden, Kentish Town musicians that we hung around with, and and uh, and I just play, and they weren't into really into house music either at all. They were all in." indie rock bands and stuff before all the indie rock bands suddenly started using the funky drummer drum loop and pretending that they'd been down with dance music the whole time um and they were all sort of like oh, no, it's not really proper music you're just pressing buttons kind of thing <laughs> and, uh, and then and um so i did a couple of gigs in there and what there was um because, like I say, it was people after the pub in Camden and Kentish Town, and there was like this old Irish guy playing a penny whistle along over my music, and it was like quite good, like this, the randomness of that, because there's a lot of Irish community in that part of London, and there was in the eighties. I don't know how it is now, but so there's this old man playing a penny whistle, 
sort of Irish folk music over the top of my techno. And, um, and, uh, and then my manager, Phil, just, he was beaming um, projections onto, there was McDonald's opposite the restaurant and he used to beam projections onto McDonald's wall for some reason. Um, and uh, he's a bit of a kind of situationist guy. And he was beaming like a, a spaceman onto McDonald's wall. And this guy happened to be passing, who was a promoter, who was promoting an all-dayer at Heaven two days later. And um, and it was like, that all-dayers were really a new thing then too. It's basically, you know, just the nighttime hours wasn't long enough for people to take enough drugs and dance long enough. So they'd have things going on all day, Sunday, and he, this guy was pro promoting this thing. And my manager said, look, you should get this guy, Adam, Adamski, with his synths and drum machines to come and play at your thing and talk this guy into it. And then I went and did that. And, um, and, th and, and from there, it was this guy's birthday and he, he was having a party on a boat that evening, leaving from the pier at Charing Cross, which was just like spitting distance from heaven. So just carried the gear down there because it went off, I, I have to say, too. Yeah. It just like went off in heaven when I played. It was like, oh, my God. You know, that was my first proper gig in a nightclub. Wow. It was, in, it was a daytime. In heaven. Thought, That's amazing. It's still my favourite club today. That was just. And wow. I didn't. Yeah, and I'm going to play there in April, actually, at a rage um, kind of reunion thing wow. with Fabio and Groove Rider and everyone. Oh, my so God. So that's really exciting. Wow. But, but then I didn't even have a keyboard stand at that point. I had my gear on the floor and there was people stepping. Like I was on the stage, but people could dance on the stage. So there was just people sort of dancing over me and sort of walking around me and like, looking over my shoulder going what are you doing and i'm just kneeling on the floor pushing buttons and twiddling knobs and playing little bits of piano and stuff and and then then on and then i played on this boat party and on the boat party because this guy was like friends with everyone we're all the big uh the rave promoters of the of the era the summer of 89 and they all just started going oh you should come and play at our rave and so it was like literally from playing at about 30, 30 people in my manager's restaurant like a month later i was playing to like eight thousand people at sunrise and just like ridiculous mental so you always had the dream of being famous from when you were very little apparently how was the reality then by the sounds of it, it, it was a pretty intense experience for you. Well, it was, but I have to say, I didn't always dream of being famous. I, I just dreamt of being a musician and having that as a, as a living. Because I, I remember, like, when I was a kid, we went on um, holiday to Tenerife when I was, like, 11 or something. Uh, 12 so I would have already made that record but 
I remember we went we went to Tenerife and like there was a band playing in the hotel bar downstairs. I'm like trying to sleep in the hotel and there's this band just playing really loud underneath the the room and I just thought I'd just love to be in a band in a hotel playing cover versions. That was, you know, just just as much I did I would watch Top of the Pops and think, Oh, I wish I was like, you know, one of like the specials or, you know, something but I I also it just I even like the idea of being a busker yeah was appealing to me and I actually was one for a period when I moved to London when I was 17 I was a busker I had to do it because I got such little uh, social security benefit money that I had to busk to be able to like eat really wow and eat well eat and drink beer and smoke cigarettes and other stuff when you're 17 that kind of essential but 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 yeah on and off I wanted to be famous I think maybe all kids do they want to be like the president or a football player most kids but it wasn't about being famous it was just about playing music which I've always been passionate about um, being able to just play music. Here, let me play you. Let me play you a clip. This was a quote about what really happened when you really hit the big time, and and how you experienced that. ID Magazine, nineteen ninety. This is a quote from Adamski about the pressures he's under. I feel like I'm being dragged around the world by my hair. I'm not being treated as a human being with emotions. I'm just treated like a dickhead, like some stock Aitken and Waterman act who comes in with nothing and is sculpted into a major star. Music is basically the only thing I have control over and I'm misrepresented in the press, I'm misrepresented everywhere and no one really understands what I'm actually doing. Can you remember feeling that that pressure at the time? Well, yeah, kind of. I mean, it's such a long time ago now. And that half of that quote sounded to me like I was being a bit bitter about something. And partly I know that part of that was of my own making, like the experiences I had. And also, as we ascertained early in this interview, I'm a poor judge of character, having like written fan letters to the worst the most serial, like, evil paedophiles <laughs> in, like, the world um, as a child. So I I did, um, I did kind of some, t- not completely, but surround, uh, I had a lot of mm-hmm. hangers-on and business people who latched on to me that were, were kind of, yeah, kind of low-lifes, really, for want of a better word. And um, so... And I, but I could have, I could have just chosen more wisely people I had to represent me if I'd known how to, Um, you know, if I, I might employ someone because I thought they were really nice because they shared a joint with me or something. I didn't know that six months later they were going to steal like 
80 grand yeah. off me. <laughs> that... I mean, it was just, that's all that. And the, I was probably, I get, get you know, the thing about having to just be, you know, um, loyal to like the rave scene and make rave music and bit, which isn't really what I, I, I like. Ha half the music that got me well known was I didn't even consider it finished. Like my first instrumental album, they were like sketches of things that I would have wanted to make into songs, but, and I sort of rushed a bit and then I, you know, and I, and I didn't want I did like Killer, my famous track with Seal, it's not formulaic rave music or house music or any, it's kind of different. And it, that just turned out like that because I wasn't trying to make music by numbers. But then when I, I don't know, that one just happened to work out and connect with people. But then when I started trying to sing Elvis over my music and stuff, I think I lost a few people like with that. But that's, I wanted to, I don't know. I'm, I'm trying to get what I meant from the quote and trying to put so myself in. Basically there. from, from what, the the feeling I got from the quotes that James was reading to me was definitely you were talking about uh, the bullshit detector and that it wasn't always functioning at the time. And you were talking about mm. a moment where you went to the US and you basically yeah. were pressured to sign something. This was about this was about killer from from what I've understood that you applied with mm. wine mm. and weed and you had jet lag and you were told that if you didn't sign yeah. this, they weren't going to introduce you to the people that you needed to meet that, you know, you had to find your own way oh, back yeah. to London and that you signed and that you therefore actually lost the rights uh, or the big income. That's right. Yeah, I was. Killer. Yeah, that's true. I was manipulated by people that were good at manipulating people because that's the, in their nature and that's how they get through life by kind of manipulating people. And I was very malleable man. I was like 21. I was, if I, if I just had a couple of puffs on a spliff, my brain turned to goo and I'd be like, scared of everyone and like okay yeah whatever you say and um and uh and um yeah and I did yeah I signed uh, I signed I gave people power of attorney so they sold the rights of killer in America for peanuts but for their benefit for their short-term benefit so they could go out and buy a new leather jacket and a few grams of cocaine or something and a car and and, um, and I didn't really know what I'd done, and I didn't really, I didn't really have people around me who knew or could advise. People would go, "Oh, what are you doing, hanging around with him for? He's a wrongen." But when I went to when I went to LA the first time, and I was in Hollywood, and I saw that Hollywood sign, I was so naive and unworldly that I didn't even know Hollywood was in LA. I was like, what, why is that Hollywood 
sign up there on that hill <laughs> and and I didn't know what was going on really I'm not no. just saying it I really didn't know anything I'd never even been up north in England till I went up and played at the Hacienda and stuff I'd never been north of like the Watford Gap I'd never been even up to Birmingham wow. like I didn't know anything wow. No, like, but sadly enough, your story is the story of so many in, yeah. in that way. You know, it's always a, young people, quite vulnerable people in a mm. way, creative people, and they just get latched on mm. as soon as they're um, successful. And yeah, people try and take as much out of them as yeah, they can. They is do. it true that ye- is it true that years later, when um, George Michael recorded the track and was mm. back at number one with mm. Killer, was it true there was a quote where you said that you were just you know basically sleeping on a sofa that was half the size of your body and drinking cooking cherry that or was that just uh, yeah. you being kind of no I was you know, actually you literally was yeah but then yeah I've always had that thing too where things are just to be about to get as bad as they can get and then I just have some kind of serendipitous good thing come out of the left field because that the thing about George Michael, like, I mean, God rest his soul and not to speak ill of the dead, but I hated it. I hated George Michael music. When I was at school, I was into like the cramps or, you know, if it was pop music, it would be like Vince Clark's sort of pop music or, you know, and, and I didn't like that George Michael music. So, and uh, it, so it was really surreal that he did my song. And then he wasn't really particularly, fr- he came and said hello to me very briefly uh, at, at some party in London and said, oh, I've done your song. And I was like, oh, great. And then that, that was, you know, about a, a 10 second exchange. And then um, that was the only time I ever met him. And um so you made no money out of that? Well, no, initially, it was a charity thing for the Terence Higgins or, right. or the, that. It was for the AIDS, Freddie Mercury charity, the Phoenix charity. It was for one of the AIDS charities. And I just happily just signed over my whole thing to that because I guess that's how I, I am. And um, But then... Um, but then when he put it on his um, greatest hits later in that decade, um, then it wasn't for charity. So then, of course, I benefited from that. Okay, so you did make some money out of Killer because that was the, that, yeah. that was the thing I wasn't sure about. Yeah, yeah, just the, well, not okay. in America and not off George Michael's massive hit with it initially. Um, but when he put it on his greatest hits album i don't know how much i made like because he's a lot he had a lot of hits so that divides up the, the money more and more and more doesn't it um and i've obviously i share my bit with seal with 50 50 on that song and uh but then loads of other people have covered it too it's quite weird like how many people like the great techno dj Boys Noise did a cover of it like two or three years ago. And there was a, another German, he's German, there was another German artist got it in the English charts 
in at some point in the 90s as well and these quite big groups have done it um like one called bastille and another one called sons and daughters like there's loads of people have done it and then even like these weird like heavy metal versions from scandinavia and stuff and it is weird because i remember programming that bass line into my synth in 1989 because it was one of my it was part of my repertoire my instrumental stuff there's a clip of me on youtube playing it in the hacienda you know before i think before i'd even met seal you know and it was just one of the tunes that people really liked of mine and i was playing it um and uh and i remember i remember playing that bass line in with one finger like do 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 and it would be like to tuesday morning or something in my bed sit and i remember doing it and then that just evolving into this thing that's had so much respect and got got me a very interesting like life yeah. with uh, a lot I've had a lot of nice meals out of that song. <laughs> it's kind of it's almost a shame because when you say in that there's all these different covers and even like a heavy metal version mm. because you did the 30th anniversary yeah. of Killer and did some re-recordings with with Boy George and stuff yeah What got all the cover versions? All the different cover yeah, versions. I would have loved to hear hear them all side by side. That would yeah. I've kind of I was putting a, a Spotify playlist of them all together actually, just to remind myself who like in situations like this when I'm talking about it, who I have to remember to refer to who's done it, and um. Someone sugar else babes as well was it? Was Pardon? It, was it sugar? Was it sugar babes as well? Oh yeah, they did band, it. Right? Yeah, yeah. Right. I always forget a couple of them. Oh, and then Pete Tong's been doing it with his orchestra around, and and then he had like Rick Astley singing Seals bit, and it's like that's so surreal too. kind of Rick Astley I mean I, once I met him and he was quite a friendly nice bloke but he would go into my um, folder with George Michael of 80s pop music that I really didn't like I mean the kind of music that actually spurred me on to make my kind of music like I think a lot of good music is made not saying their music's bad music anymore i can't say that because everyone's you know I've, I've grown out of that attitude where i think i'm right 
you know, my taste and my opinion is the correct opinion. But uh, like, there's a lot of good music that's been made over the decades in pop culture as a reaction against music that people really didn't like. You know, that was kind of big part of the whole point of punk rock was a, re a reaction against like the mainstream and middle of the road boring music that was on offer at that point in time. So Boy George, mm. obviously you're still friends with him. Can I just play you a quote from way back? I wonder if you remember this. ID December 1990, over 30 years ago. Boy George is always sneering at me saying that really I'm gay and Natalie's just my beard. So do you remember, do you remember how Boy George used to teach you about your sexuality? Well, funnily enough, in the 2000s, when we sort of reconnected around all that electro clash scene and my mate was doing this club nag, 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 and George and I were often there. I DJed there like, quite a few times and George went there like most weeks. And uh, he still thought I was gay then. And I was like, get over it. And, like, and um, and it, I, I don't know, it's quite funny because there's other gay people just like insist on gay. And I'm like, I'm just not. I've even tried really hard to be gay, like, <laughs> and uh, just didn't work. Like, if you aren't, you aren't. You you are what you are, right? This is and it's a bit uh, how funny. It's a bit um, just because I've like got yellow eyebrows or something, and like. I don't know, embroidered trousers. It doesn't mean like I like like sleeping with men. It's just about it's just about your holes of preference, isn't it? Like I don't even know why <laughs> certain things, certain lifestyle choices and certain styles of dress are affiliated with, you know, what holes you're in and out of in basically it what like what it doesn't make any sense it doesn't does it? matter does nothing it? In, it, it actually doesn't... nothing in to me in life makes any sense anymore i i i find it weird like what goes what becomes popular in culture and like i won't like even certain bands like what they call themselves and I think they'll never get anywhere with a name like that and then all of a sudden they're like the biggest band in the world and it's weird stuff you like know, that. Just... Norman Cook always had a funny um, philosophy about mm. that, uh, Fat Boy Slim. He always said that, you know, if you want to be successful, you've got to have a shit name. If it's got a, if, if the name is too thought out, it usually uh. doesn't work. I don't know, Fat Boy Slim. Uh, that's kind yeah. of dumb. Yeah, <laughs> well, funnily enough, my name wasn't really that thought out. It was like my manager, the one with the restaurant in Kentish Town, he'd just been to some UFO convention and he had this cassette with this guy called George Adamski speaking. And before that, my I was calling myself Adam Schmuck. And that was my name. And then I heard this George Adamski and I thought, oh, that's a good name. And there were these like, you know, it was a sort of hip hop. It was like fresh ski and norm ski, it, even though I didn't, I wasn't right. aware of it. And it was just a bit of a sort of crap sort of pun on that. 
and then just thought, oh, this George Adamski sounds cool. He's been like abducted by aliens and stuff. I can relate to that. Um, so, and uh, and it, and then it was just sort of like, oh no, that's really embarrassing name. As things started to go off quite quickly, I was like, why did I call myself that? And then that's even why yeah. why I changed it to Adam Sky in 2000 because I was living in Italy then and I was DJing and they kept misspelling my name and putting um spelling it with a y instead of an i and I was thinking wow Adam Sky that's quite a cool name I'm just going to change my name to that and I did and it was quite refreshing I started getting bookings um I I kind of from I started all from scratch really getting bookings not going to play killer or energy or my old rave stuff but playing new music and i was getting going to russia quite often and south america as adam sky but then as i said this other guy came out called adam sky and then i don't know that's all that stuff's (laughs) weird too like how how can that happen you know like well, you just keep moving through different stages in your life, yeah. different personalities emerge. Like, what was the other thing you did? You did the uh, Sonny Ericsson. Oh, oh yeah. and then, of course, there was the whole three-step phase. Are you I'm, still in your three-step phase? I'm is that why you're in Vienna? That. Because it's the home of the waltz? Is that how you ended up? Because this is, this is where you are now, right? I started coming to Vienna to research my waltz project, and then... I was working with this rapper whose manager turned out to be Viennese. (laughs) And I thought, oh, that will add some authenticity to the whole project, have a Viennese manager. And then I ended up marrying her. (laughs) And now we're living in Vienna. I love it. I I am, I, I am, it was partly like getting a Viennese manager to add authenticity to the project, but partly just because I fancied her. But anyway, I became obsessed with it as I'm the sort of person that gets obsessed with stuff and just researched it intensely and its origins and and how it kind of emanated out of Austria in the 1700s and kind of went global and realised that there is a lot of parallels with the acid house scene, how that evolved into rave and that went global and both you know the waltz in the 18th century was the original um dance underground it was really a scandalous thing and it was also something that broke down um social barriers and there was like oh you know there'd be a duke dancing with like a a maid or something you know and like and they, even that people were touching each other was considered scandalous in those days, but dancing around the room and and I just and then I just started making music in three four as an experiment, and then it I started djing in three four and then I kind of got really obsessive and nuts about it and got a big w tattooed on my forehead and um, and just said to the universe right i'm never going to make I'm only going to make music in three, four times for the rest of my life. <laughs> and it all got a bit out of hand. But I played at this um, Vivian Westwood party in Vienna 
and I got all these Viennese fashionista people just like spinning around the room and it was like six o'clock in the morning sun was up coming through the windows and it just the vibe was so much like being at the dungeons in east london in 1989 with all the like people on e dancing at six o'clock in the morning to like cold cut or a big tune of the day and uh and wow. um but they were all waltzing around the room and they kind of learned it in school and it, i just so i ended up making this project which ended up being called revolt because uh waltz means to revolve in old german um i learned as part of my research um it means to spin and so revolting and then i ended up just getting all these kind of unlikely waltzers like lee scratch perry and um congo natty and some like grime MCs and people that you wouldn't really expect to be making waltzes. So can can I can I play you a funny quote then? <laughs> so right at the end of ID, last thing, I'm gonna go to Salzburg. I'm gonna go and lie naked on Mozart's grave and have a wank. Nobody knows that much about Mozart, but I watched Amadeus, and if he really was like that, that's exactly how I want to be. Okay, well, I was probably drunk when I said that because I didn't make it to Austria to many 20 years after that. Talking of Mozart, I'll tell you this. Um, he did, a, I've forgotten what it's called in German now, but it's a choral piece called Lick My Arse. Yes, I've heard that. My 15-year-old son played that for me. <laughs> yeah, and I, while I was researching my waltz project, and I thought, yeah, and he had a pink wig, and he used to like, you know, and he was so punk rock and, and amazing. And then, so it, I'd be kind of, I can just kind of walk around Vienna and sort of just time travel in my mind to 200 years ago and pick up the energy of back then. And but I because I because you asked me what happened to that though I, I'm revisiting that now I'm here living here most of the time I'm I, but it's this time because I tried to be too clever like fusing like dub and 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 uh dubstep and grime and techno and drum and bass and everything all with the waltz this time it's just going to be acid house and waltz and it's going to be acid waltz and more more simple and less explaining to do so it's basically going to be acid house music in three four time and people go oh, you can't dance to that but you so can i would dj and people would be dancing and they don't even know if it's got contemporary drum sounds then you know and it, it's got a groove it, it doesn't you have to always be like the same right <laughs> well you um, definitely you definitely aren't you i i just love your whole colorful past and all the stuff that you're going to be up to next i'm sure it's going to be um different from what everyone mm. else is doing and that's what's that's what's so brilliant about you so i'm really looking forward to hearing uh, whatever you're going to be drumming up next oh thank you it's nice to see you simone it's so lovely seeing you 
how'd it go with the Damsky? How was it? I mean, I know there was a couple of sensitive topics in there, like the uh, yes. Gary Glitter and Jimmy Savile stuff, who were his heroes at one time. I know, which, I know. Uh, it was I, really, it was quite yeah. awkward on the one hand. The, the the whole the whole situation around these guys is horrendous, but he he picked it up so well. He was so open and honest and and funny i mean the other thing as well when he was um talking about his his true sexual orientation he was just cracking me up he's such a funny character and he doesn't even realize how many great quotes he just keeps coming out with naturally no wonder the press used to go crazy about him because he just comes sure. out with these gems so um that was really good fun and, and he was so young I know he was so young when it was all happening, and he was the he was again that's so important, which I'm sure came across in the interview, which I look forward to checking out. He, you know, he he was groundbreaking at such a young age. He was yeah. his keyboard wizard yeah. on the rave scene yeah. for a rave scene that had was embryonic. Yeah, no, it happened. It, it, it was happening. Yeah, it, so he was living through it. Right, and it was great to to reminisce with him on these things. And the thing I was really happy to find out was that he did not lose all the rights to Killer, right? That was the big thing. I thought that maybe he wouldn't have made any money out of Killer, but lucky enough, that was just in America. And so he did make some money, rightly so. And um, so, yeah, I was, I was happy to, to hear that. It was, it was great. Good, good fun. Good stuff. <laughs> 